This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. AOPA presents Never Again, True Pilot Stories from the World of General Aviation. In this episode, a 185 pilot has a near miss with a 747. How do you not see a 747? Find out in Close Call by William Kramer. I spent eight years flying my Cessna 185 daily from our home at Horseshoe Lake near Big Lake, Alaska, into Anchorage's Merrill Field. In the summertime, I flew off the lake and landed on Merrill Field's pavement on a set of Whipline 3730 amphibious floats. Daylight was plentiful, and operations were routinely completed under VFR conditions. The amphibious floats gave me lots of options along the 26 nautical mile route. If I needed to set down and wait out 15 minutes of bad weather along the way, plenty of small lakes allowed me to do just that. I became very familiar with the terrain along the route and could navigate low level between landmarks in marginal weather. Wintertime operations were completed in the Cessna 185, now equipped with a set of hydraulic wheel skis. The main difference during winter operations was the availability of daylight. In the Anchorage area on winter solstice, the sun rises at about 10.15 a.m. and sunset comes at about 3.45 p.m., which meant most of my winter flights were completed in the dark. Flying inbound toward Merrill Field was fairly routine because the glow of city lights allowed for a definable horizon. Flying outbound toward home was a very different experience because of the lack of a perceived horizon. The snow-covered ground was both a blessing and a curse, depending on the sky cover above. With clear skies and a full moon to reflect off the snow below, it was bright enough to see shadows being cast from the trees, and those experiences remain some of my most enjoyable flights. Dark winter night flights with low overcast gray skies on a snow-covered landscape can create very challenging flight conditions because of the complete lack of a horizon. And for that reason, they were some of my most challenging and least enjoyable flights. During early morning and evening winter flights into and out of Merrill Field, sometimes I was the only pilot on the frequency. 
My requests and movements around the field toward the active runway became so routine that clearances and altitude deviations would typically pass to me without my specific request. At times, I'd simply report my current position to the tower and I would receive a clearance to land as well as a taxi to parking. All in one sentence. Merrill Field sits among some of the most active airspace in Alaska and clearances to deviate from specific altitude restrictions must be received along with a transponder squawk before the altitude deviation can be approved. The altitude restrictions are in place to accommodate the neighboring Elmendorf Air Force Base's instrument approaches. Flights in and out of Merrill Field had to be flown either below 600 feet MSL or above 2,000 feet MSL unless you had a Part 93 deviation for flight between those altitudes. The wind was out of the north, and it was both winter and dark. I was given taxi instructions by Merrill Ground Control for runway 33 Ship Creek departure, along with squawk code and approved altitude deviation. Since I typically completed my run-up sequence on the way to the assigned runway, and would call ready for takeoff as I approached the active runway. My tires usually never stopped rotating. I'd roll onto the runway, check my heading bug, confirm that my altimeter was set to field elevation, apply full throttle, and check fuel flow. In the lightly loaded Cessna 185, I was airborne and climbing quickly. My attention was now on raising flaps, power and prop settings, and lowering my wheel skis, in preparation for landing on my frozen lake. All of this may have taken maybe 30 seconds, but near Ship Creek, I was rapidly climbing through 1,200 feet MSL as I approached the restricted airspace. My initial heading on a Ship Creek departure is basically westbound with a northerly turn toward home base once I reached Point McKenzie. Pilots don't typically fly low and slow during this two-and-a-half nautical mile stretch between Merrill Field and Point McKenzie. It is open water, so you're holding your breath. Unbeknownst to me, and at the same time I received my Merrill Tower clearance, Elmendorf Tower released for departure on runway 23 an evergreen Boeing 747 flight loaded with troops outbound for the Gulf War effort. The tower typically lands traffic to the southwest, but will direct airplanes to take off on runway 5. Our flight paths met just prior to Point McKenzie. All I can figure to this day is that because we were both on parallel westerly headings, I missed seeing this massive aircraft. I didn't see the other airplane first, I heard the whine of the turbine engines approaching. My Cessna 185 has three skylights just over the pilot and co-pilot seats, and what I saw next was the inboard left side engine nacelle pass directly over my head. I honestly thought it was over. I was directly underneath a Boeing 747 and was sure I knew what was going to happen next when I encountered the wake turbulence from this aircraft. My instinctive reaction was to chop the power and push the yoke to its forward stops. On the near vertical descent to 500 feet MSL, I don't think I took a breath. 
It wasn't until I leveled off on a northerly heading that I felt under control and safe again. As this was all unfolding, I remember hearing in the background the various controllers calling for immediate evasive actions. I made the rest of the flight safely, and by the time I landed at home and got into the house, my phone was ringing with apologies. I knew good people had made mistakes and appreciated the acceptance of responsibility, but I also knew my failure to be more aware of my surroundings played a significant role in what could have been an unthinkable tragedy for all involved. The 747 captains and my estimation on how close a near-miss had occurred for the official record, if there even is one, differed by 300 feet. But I know full well the sounds and sights from my pilot seat. I was close enough to count rivet heads. I learned a valuable lesson about complacency and situational awareness that evening. Fifteen years later, I'm still flying into Merrill Field occasionally, and can't remember a time when I passed through this slice of airspace without looking both ways. The Never Again Podcast is brought to you monthly by AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. You can find more Never Again stories online at aopa.org by typing Never Again into the search box. While you're there, check out AOPA's mobile flight planning app, AOPA Go, as well as the many free training and safety courses from the Air Safety Institute. Find all of this and more at AOPA.org. The Never Again podcast is produced by Royce Earl. Thanks for listening. Fly safely. Fly safely.